This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Welcome to episode 27 of your Missing the Point podcast, where we discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the downright bizarre aspects of life, as we have conversations with people from all over the world. Today we have another installment of Conspiracy Chit Chat, where the listeners jump on board to discuss everything from conspiracy to politics, current events, and everything in between. Today I'm joined by a guest who shockingly lives within driving distance of me, a man who flew his family over 15,579 kilometres from their home to start a new life in Australia. He's the son of the Emerald Isle the land of saints and scholars. Let us welcome my new Irish mate, Brian. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Drew. How are you? Very good, mate. Very good. So what brings an Irishman to Australia? How do you uproot your family and go to the other side of the planet to start a new life? How did that all go? Well, I suppose I actually came here on my own as a backpacker. Um, Originally, originally I did some work experience in New Zealand um, 20 odd years ago and came to Australia on a couple of months holidays on the way home um then after after spending a few years back in the uk and ireland decided to come over here and do some traveling and yeah just forgot to go home after it seems to be 12, this, this, 12 years ago now seems to be this the standard going thing for irish people in australia that's for sure yeah, that's my it. school's got quite a few uh irish uh replacement teachers at the moment so stand-in teachers there they can okay. fly in yep. do they do a bit of work and then go back in between and they seem yes, to be yep, like yep. traveling gypsies <laughs> yes yeah 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 so, so no, look, it, it, i suppose it's it's an easy country for us to move to similar culture similar or same language if yeah apart from the accents obviously um yeah it's, it's a pretty easy place to move to yeah we've got a bit of shared history and shared culture australia and ireland um a lot of our early convicts were either irish or scotch so we've got a lot yeah. of that bred into us from you lot yeah. and australia used to be a pretty free country it used to be, yeah. That, that's that's actually my follow up question. So, was there anything in particular that made you leave Ireland? The weather. The weather. <laughs> no, no. Um, I after after two years of back of backpacking in oh eight oh nine, I did intend to move home once my visa ran out. So, I, um, in oh nine, I managed to miss uh, two months of snow in November November and December of that year. So I thought I was pretty safe moving home in 010. And yeah, we had six weeks of snow that winter, which is quite unusual. <laughs> but after six weeks of snow, I packed my bags and left on Boxing Day and arrived back in Australia again. And and you came to Victoria, which is slightly better. Yeah, margin, marginally. <laughs> marginally. But it's yeah. not too bad that you won't like completely fry. Exactly. Yeah, Irish-friendly yeah. weather. That's it. Yeah. So how do you feel about Australia now? Now that you've you've been in Australia in the region, 
like you said, Australia is traditionally is a pretty free place, but what do you think of Australia now that you, you're living here and working here after the last couple of years? Yeah, I suppose it, it did come as a bit of a shock when I realised how the country traded their citizens during COVID, uh, especially Victoria. Um, I, I suppose I, I hadn't paid as much attention on or to the politics in the country up until that point. And yeah, obviously being in Victoria, um, it was pretty shocking what we had to live through for for a couple of years. Uh, luckily, we were 15 minutes outside of the Ring of Steel or whatever Daniel Andrews was calling it at the time. Um, we actually had part of our, uh, one of the farms that I was looking after was actually inside the Ring of Steel, believe it or not, in, in, inside their, their supposed city region. Um, so that was interesting. We we didn't have any issues going in and out, but it it did it did just highlight um, yeah how crazy things got being so close to the the edge of that area. Yeah, I was going to say like from our conversations that we've had across social media and a couple other platforms, you seem to have your finger on the pulse of politics in this state pretty well. You know all the death spots and all the all the tyrants <laughs> that are at play, so you're doing really well. Yeah, yeah. I suppose one of the things that I find interesting is I don't really see much difference between the two main parties in Australia. For, for as an outsider coming in, it doesn't really, it isn't really noticeable that one is the left, one is the right. It, they both seem like they're both hopeless, and they're, they're both. There doesn't really seem to be an opposition party in Victoria either, or not one that has any chance of winning enough votes to have any competition. Yeah, with I think, party. yeah, I think it's uniquely Australian at this point that our so-called conservative right-wing party is just kowtowing and, and moving across with that Overton window that they're practically a left-wing party now. There's no differentiation. Yes. They're just yes. slightly less dictatorial on what they want to do. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think Daniel Andrews has any, or his party have got any hope of getting ousted in the next election. Um, with they, they still seem to have a huge amount of support, no matter what they do. Uh, yeah, that, I that's, think that is a horrifying. I think that's just given them. It's just given them the it's the red flag to a bull. Like they they know they know they can do whatever they want and still get reelected. So they don't really have to appease the other side in any way. No, not at all. He's got that much of a well. Our parliamentary system certainly helps him retain power. But he's going on his third term now. He could quite easily rake in a fourth. And a lot of yeah. Victorians could have grown up with and own only Dan Andrews as our premier for the state. That's a pretty yes, horrifying exactly. thing. When yeah. any government's in power for that long, it's actually bad for politics in general because you've got no form of an opposition that can go against crazy ideas or bills that get passed. Yeah, definitely. And look, I, I haven't, I've never voted in Australia because I only became a citizen in the last 12 months. But looking at my options in the next election, I, I think independents are, are the only hope to to um, show a little bit of support to. But even then, I think it's it's a bit of, yeah, it's going to be the same again, really, regardless of what we try and do. It will be. Now, did you have mandatory voting back in Ireland? No. No, so there you go. Now you're forced to. You come here, yes. and aren't you lucky that you have to contribute yeah. to this wonderful? Yeah, and that's something I don't. I, at first, I thought, yeah, that might be a good idea, but now, when I see how clueless most people are to what's going on, and those people are then 
voting and they could be swayed they could be swayed on the day before the election by one advert or one poster or one free handout that they're being promised and and that seems to be all of that it takes you know promise them a new tv or whatever it is and they're going to vote in that direction yeah the, the majority of people and i've said it before on previous podcasts the amount of people that voted for dan andrews based on a 250 dollar energy subsidy payment yeah, that Crazy. hasn't appeared no it has not appeared <laughs> <laughs> yeah those promises that seem to go nowhere yeah, and in the meantime, our, our power bills have gone up by a lot more than $250. It's, yeah, thousands of dollars increased. So, oh, yeah, the inflation rate just seems to kick the shit out of any offer they seem to give to us anyway. Exactly. So what brought you to Australia? Besides making that move for greater weather, what what line of work are you in in Australia here? Um, look, well, I'm currently, well, I'm a dairy farmer. Um, I grew up grew up on a on a mixed farm in Ireland. Um, a little bit of everything, dairy, beef, sheep, um, poultry. Um, my parents are still farming. They've got a commercial uh, broiler farm, poultry, and they, they do rear some cattle as well. Um, I suppose my main interest growing up was the dairy industry, um, and I went went to agriculture college and, and studied ag for, for two years and, and did one year of work experience in New Zealand and, and Ireland as part of that course. So... After spending a couple of years traveling here, um, but to get a visa to, to actually stay in the country, I had to go back to doing the occupation that I was qualified at. Um, while I was traveling, I was working in construction and various other jobs. Um, so, yeah, I had to go back into dairy farming, got sponsored by a local farm here in Gippsland. And, yeah, then got back into that industry and realized there's quite a few opportunities in Australia, mainly due to the scale um you know being able to acquire larger plot larger farms um the price of the land is yeah, significantly cheaper than Ireland and yeah there's obviously there's lots of opportunities in ag if you know where to look especially with an aging population of farmers um I'm turning 40 this year and I'm still classified as a young farmer um I've probably got another 10 years of being a young farmer um looking at the age of of the average farmer um yeah so that that it was the opportunities in Darien that made me stay um sort of spent the last seven years working for a, a large corporate multinational corporate that owned um, a few dairy farms and we we're lucky enough to purchase our own dairy farm pretty much 12 months ago awesome so that's a brand new start for you like you said it's um it's an issue within Australia that I think it takes someone from the outside looking in to see the issues that are happening within our own agricultural sector that, like you said, we've got so many farmers that are ageing out and it just yeah. so happens to be that their kids don't want to take over. They've kind of seen the limelight of cities and universities and they're not exactly. coming back and they're selling out. And yeah. to the average Australian, the cost of farms seem really expensive and the land seems expensive, but that's yes. just... Um, a confirmation bias of that's what we know, but for like yourself in from coming from Europe, the price of land just is ridiculous in comparison to what you would actually get for your buck. Yes, yeah, yeah. So look, uh, where my where I grew up, I'd be looking at you know forty fifty percent more for our land there compared to here, and similar similar rates of production per hectare here, except a lot less um, a lot less red tape. So obviously growing up in the EU, being under EU regulation, it was much more difficult to farm there. Um, it's definitely a freer country to farm at the moment, 
um, in Australia, but I can see that most of the rules and regulations over there will happen down here and will become more restrictive. That was that was my question that I was going to go across is that I know that there's quite a few regulations in regards to the European Union and their Agenda 2030 type of stuff in farming over there. Yeah. How far have you seen it in Australia so far? Well, Victoria seems to be the testing ground for a lot of this stuff. So are you starting to see a lot of the, that type of thing come in now? Yeah, it's still sort of 15 years behind the EU though. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that probably makes it um, one of the causes of it being 15 years behind is probably the fact that agriculture isn't quite as intensive here. You know, got bigger, wider open spaces. The farms, you know, for example, the dairy farms aren't back to back here. There's, you know, we, we, we don't have a dairy farm next door to us. We, you know, there's multiple other properties, so it's not quite as intensive. So there's a less, less environmental issues. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, you, in the EU, a lot of the environmental restrictions have had consequences that weren't intended um, that have probably made some of the environmental issues worse. So you've got people in Brussels making rules for people in Ireland, and yeah, those rules don't really work on in, in, in on paper. They might, in principle, they definitely don't. No, the the European Union is just a. It seems like such an ass backwards approach to things. How can you have a body or a government say what people in other countries and other cultures can actually do in regards to their economy and how they live their lives. The exactly. life of an Irishman compared to someone in Germany is, yep. they might be European, but they're still polar opposites. They're completely different yes. people. Yeah. And even just some of the rules that they have to abide by, say with, with fertilizer rules, you know, they're, they're not based on the weather. They're based on calendar dates. You know, you're not allowed to spread fertilizer before this date and after this date. You know, they're not, and they're not taking into account the weather or the change in the seasons or, you know, different different weather from one season to the next. It's, it's yeah, you're not allowed to spread on this date after this date. Yeah, very restrictive. Now, the interesting thing would be, do you think it's all those things that are intended to protect the environment, do you think they've had either a negligible or negative impact? The heck for I the- think a lot of them have probably had a negative effect. Yeah. Kind of makes sense. Dan Andrews in in our state has brought forward the the ban on forestry logging in our eucalypt forests, which was supposed to end in twenty third, and he's brought it into twenty twenty four. So even in just that small aspect, we can see a lot of those European Union and World Economic Forum Agenda twenty thirty yes. types of deals happening. So I don't think it'll be that far off that our agricultural sectors start getting hit pretty hard with a bunch of rubbish. Yeah, and look. Obviously, some rules are needed, um, but if if you believed everything in the media, you would think that the farmers' first thing that they do in the morning is get, you know wake up and work out how we're going to kill everybody, you know, how <laughs> how are we going to poison the world, and how are we going to pollute the world? But that's 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 not what we're trying to do. We're yeah, we're, way- we're most we're mostly good people in, in 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 you know you do get the odd bad egg, but we're mostly good people doing the right thing and trying to look after the land. I think the government regulators of the EPA would would make out that you guys are practically running wet markets with all kinds of yeah, diseases of and yeah. things growing, right? Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. On that note, I I do believe you've been dipping your toes into the rabbit hole that is animal vaccination. Yes. Yeah. So when we spoke about it, um, something obviously that 
Yeah, we've all been looking into over the last few years and hearing about his M- mRNA vaccines. And I suppose I, I thought I would know if these things were going on. I know I would, uh, being in the agricultural industry, I, I would have heard about these things. But when I started doing some research, I yeah found out they've probably been using mRNA for quite a few years more than, than I've realized. Um. Even since I've started looking into it as well, I think some of the information that I was looking at a week ago has been wiped. Oh, so, there's some articles that I'm that I had that I found a week ago that I can't find now, uh, which is interesting because I, when you think about the fact that if there was a good mRNA vaccine that they could compare to during COVID, they probably would have used it as something to compare to. Yeah, it, like like you said, if they've been using it in say I don't know goats for twenty years yeah. for some kind of virus, yeah. it would say, have hey, said, "Yeah, we've well, used it on animals and it's fine." Exactly. But they didn't yeah. do that, did they? Yeah, we didn't hear any comparisons. But so the first one that I did find was, um, yeah, Merck have been developing a product, um, Sequivity, um, which looks like they've been using it on pigs since twenty eighteen. Um, since then, I've found I haven't got proper evidence for this one, but I was listening to a podcast with Joel Salatin last night, and he was talking about mRNA vaccines being used on poultry since 2012. And yeah. I would call him a very reliable source in the industry. As would I. And is it saying where these vaccines are being used? Is it it's say Europe or is it America? Does looks looks like America at the moment? Yeah. Because um, within the last year or so, there was a lot of talk out of New South Wales between a lot of the beef industry that they were quite concerned that a an mRNA vaccine for foot and mouth, which Australia has never traditionally had, or mere cow disease. Yeah, and the other one is is uh, lumpy skin disease. So yes, ML, MLA have have been funding research into a vaccine for LSD, lumpy skin disease, and yeah, obviously we don't have lumpy skin disease in Australia, but yeah, they, they are throwing a lot of money at it. And it's interesting because they say that the reason they need one of the, one of the advantages, there's one of the advantages that keep saying with mRNA in the articles that I'm finding for cat, for cattle, you know, um, pigs, poultry is that it's much faster to develop and much quicker to get through the regulation process. Now, well, maybe there's a reason why the other vaccines need to go through such strenuous process before they get approved. And yeah, so did you want me to go through some more of that, that stuff from Merck? Yeah, what I'll do is I'll read out the um, the main snippet from it and we'll, we'll go from there. I'll just bring it up. Okay, I've got it on my screen so you won't be able to see it, but that's okay. Vaccines using mRNA can protect farm animals against diseases traditional ones may not. And there are safeguards to ensure they won't end up in your food. So straight away, they're trying to make it out that these things are safe and effective. Those wonderful words again. While effective vaccines for COVID-19 should have heralded benefits for mRNA vaccines, fear and misinformation about their supposed dangers circulated the internet at the same time. These misconceptions about mRNA vaccines have recently spilled over into worries about whether their use in agricultural 
animals could expose people to components of the vaccine within animal products such as meat or milk. In fact, a number of states are drafting and considering legislation outlawing the use of mRNA vaccines in animals, in food animals, or at minimum requiring their labelling on animal products in the grocery stores. Now, this is coming from Idaho and Missouri, Arizona and Tennessee, but we can say that's something that's most likely going to be rolled out across most of the Western world. We know that they've got plans for these types of air quotes vaccines. So it might be worth just saying who actually wrote this article. Yeah, um, who was the author of this article? David David Verhoeven. So and he he's received funding from Merck before, mm-hmm. um, and interestingly, he's doing he's he's got a got some research going on that started in 2021 into creating mRNA vaccines for cattle, and that research doesn't end until 26. But the article does say that he he has received funding from Merck, but is not currently working for Merck. But the article is clearly a damage limitation piece by Merck, if you ask me. Very much so, especially if Merck's trying to corner the market on mRNA vaccines in agriculture and, say, pets maybe. Like if the the big three have uh, human vaccines, well, then they they can take over the, the smaller end scale of things. Yeah. Which and arguably all, could do more damage in the long run. If it's yeah, all the stuff that I keep finding about this is that they're very careful not to use the term mRNA. So that they know that the the average person can Google that term, find out what they're looking for. But this new product that they have called Sequivity, it seems to be there it it's well, it's a it's more of a platform than a product. So what, what they're trying to do is is to be able to create individual vaccines for individual farms and create them really fast. So so they'll they'll find what the specific disease is on that farm and try and tailor a disease or tailor a vaccine to suit that. Now one of the reasons that I and I'm one of the reasons I'm convinced that we're they're needing to do this and that we're having some of these big outbreaks of new diseases is antibiotic resistance. So they've got most of the world has outlawed the the use of antibiotics as uh, you know in the feed or as a as a preventative, which is good. We we don't want antibiotics being used as a preventative, but since they did that, there's been a massive rise in in disease pressure. So they're still using exactly the same amount of antibiotics. They're just using them on a prescription basis. So they wait for the disease to happen, and then provide the drugs to fix it instead of using the same drugs to actually prevent it. So yeah. neither, yeah, neither situation is a good one, but both are just really hiding the problems that are created from really intensive agriculture. Absolutely. And you see this predominantly in the likes of the US where you have massive feedlots and huge yeah. factory farms, whereas Australia, I think we're quite lucky, like you said, we're 15 years behind in a lot of areas. Yeah. I think generally farming-wise, we're a good 50 years behind the rest of the world. We're still very spread out, little mom and pop, little farms that are doing their own thing. We don't have a lot of those big corporate buyouts, um, especially in, in, say, beef. Dairy it is a bit more. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely the, the the escape of bacteria creating new horrible diseases just by simply pumping these animals full of it and creating that escape there- for them. There's actually very few new antibiotics being created, so we're we're fastly outstripping, you know, the the antibiotics that we have and the use of them. Um, yeah, they're no longer when, working. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When my when my dad started farming 
you know, 60 years ago, he reckoned that regular penicillin would cure everything. And nowadays, regular penicillin does nothing. <laughs> so, but but the new new antibiotics are definitely not being created as fast as we need them to be. Um, so uh, in the developing world as well, there's definitely less regulation with antibiotics, and that's probably creating some of the superbugs, same as it is in hospitals and and yeah, not just not just agriculture. It's and it's interesting for them in the third world in that respect because then they can blame it on unsanitary conditions when the issue was really the antibiotic to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or mis misuse of the antibiotics. Yeah. You know, you know, we try to limit the amount of antibiotics we use on the farm, but you know, we want to we want to use as little as possible, but as much as we need to, because we have we have a duty of care to look after our animals and, and keep them healthy but you do want to minimize the amount of antibiotics you use. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's scary to think about and people that are within the, what you would console call the truth of space or of podcasting. We kind of know what possible reasons behind using MRNA could be. And there's, there is a very large concern that whatever's inside those shots could be passed along through say the meat, the eggs or the milk of uh, of animals if it does roll out to a high scale do you think that that's a real area yeah, of concern well the thing that i'm most concerned about now is this with this equivity um platform there won't be any trials because every vaccine is going to be a new one there's going to be a different vaccine for every farm so they're not going to do a different trial every vaccine could be tailored in a different way and could have different effects so there's no way that there's no way of them doing any trials because every batch will be a new trial. Talk about um, a perfect storm. That's just screams to me, the Andromeda strain. Yep. One random farm will have something horrible that will kick off as a response. And that could be that 60, 70% kill rate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or, well, how do we know that some of the diseases that have come out in the last decade haven't been caused by something like this in the first place? Well, there's a, I can't recall the scientist's name, but he was talking to the effect of the first COVID-19 or coronavirus mRNA vaccine was actually developed in the 60s and it caused the actual SARS outbreaks, that SARS isn't naturally occurring and that's a derivative of a bioweapons manufacturing system. And, well, there's there's similar stories with Spanish flu, which... Never came from Spain, obviously, but no. um, probably leaked from military base in the US. Um, yeah, just more more things going wrong, but we never learn. No, definitely not. It's it's not just the uh, the idea of agriculture because like you can see that their way of thinking. We need to make sure that food production is clean so people are protected. You can understand that aspect of it, but when yes. they start talking about we need to start vaccinating trees. You know, we've got to stop trees from getting rot and we have to stop things from getting like fungal outbreaks. That's yeah. when I really start to worry because yes. it's literally yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. And look, there there are, I have seen some research into, um, you know, given multiple vaccines at the same time and, and the effect on animals and the effect on their performance. And it definitely, definitely isn't good. There's definitely some negative effects, but, you know, there's seems to be more and more vaccines and on the market all the time. And they're all, I think they're all pushed by fear because 
in in farming, you know, for example, we've we've got we're milking just over four hundred cows, so that's four hundred potential problems. If, if if you do have a have a disease, you know, if you have a disease outbreak, it could happen. Four hundred your four hundred of your animals. So your animals are your livelihood. They're producing the meat or the milk or, or whatever the product is. If you've got bills to pay and you're like, well, oh, the vaccine's only five thousand dollars, I'll just vaccinate them all. That's an insurance policy. Yeah. And then the next year there's another vaccine, but you still got to keep the first one. So they they can keep pushing another vaccine each year because the farmers are afraid. And most farmers are good at doing what they do, but they don't understand the science behind what they're doing in some cases that they're relying on expertise from their vet and the veterinary model is not really great. The veterinary model is similar to the the healthcare model in humans. You know, it's based around selling drugs. It's, it's based around yeah, sick animals make more money than, than healthy animals. And there's not enough, not enough spent on preventative measures. I don't think. No, and a lot of the the farmers and the old cow cockies they they have a lot of trust and faith in the likes of their their vets and the system that's there to help them. But you nailed it; it's absolutely fair. I've spoken to my father in law who operates a six hundred acre Angus beef farm, and I asked him about mRNA vaccines and cattle, and his his response is, "Oh, you know, we, we've got to just make sure that um, we look after them." He had no idea what's in the vaccines; they just, it's there to stop outbreaks and it's there to protect them. He said it's it's far better to pay for say six thousand dollars worth of vaccine than to lose forty thousand in stock. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it's it, that's it's risk mitigation. Financial, risk mitigation for yeah, them. It's that's a financial decision, and they, most people can see a return from that, so it's understandable why they will use the vaccine. Yeah, definitely. Crazy, crazy times. Um, what do you think will happen? Do you if say because the Biosecurity Act in Victoria and Australia is starting to get more and more strict in its in what it can do and what governments can actually impose on farms. We're creeping up to what that European Union level would be. What do you think a lot of farmers will do if they say five years down the line, all commercial cattle in Victoria have to be uh, jabbed with this vaccine against X, Y, and Z, and it's mRNA? Look, unfortunately, I think it'll be about the same numbers as we had with COVID, when it comes to resistance, most people are just going to do it. When their livelihood depends on it, they're just going to say, okay, yes. Most of them yeah. aren't going to question it either. No, you, you're going to have small numbers that are going to push back. But, yeah. I think it would probably be closer to 100% considering it is a regulated industry. It's not like a farmer can just go, oh, I'm going to sell my cattle to someone else. Oh, wait, I can't. because It would be interesting, though, because currently farmers do their own vaccinations yes. on their animals. So it'd have to be so, government. So unless they're gonna send the government vet out to do the vaccinations, the farmers could potentially just not do them. Yeah, well that's <laughs> it. They they could just they could just make up the paperwork to say they yes. have done it. Yes, but 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 if it's gonna be a forced <clears throat> vaccination scheme, well maybe they yeah, maybe they will make it a mandatory system where where it's a public servant does it. And maybe that's what they'd do if people did push back against it. They go, okay, we'll just send our, yeah. our agents to do it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think in my mind, they should be spending more time and more money on keeping the diseases out of Australia. We do have a really good disease status within 
within agriculture in general in Australia. Um, I know in the poultry industry and and in the and in the cattle industry, Australia has one of the lowest rates of disease, and we've got there's lots of diseases that are endemic in the rest of the world in lots of other countries that are not in Australia. So we we have less diseases to deal with at the moment, and we have the advantage of being a giant island. So that that does help keep um, most diseases out. Uh, but eventually some new ones will get in. Yeah, we've got the perfect borderline of having that great stretch of ocean. And then our towns and our farms, they're so sparsely um, yes. positioned away from each other. Not like what you've got in Ireland where they're piggybacked on top of each other, where if an yeah. outbreak did occur, it just kind of goes through the motions where it yeah. takes a while in Australia. So if something did happen, theoretically, we could lock something down pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And like I, uh, uh, the year that I left school, um, was the year that foot and mouth um, got into the UK and Ireland. And that was pretty horrific to live through. Um, luckily, it didn't get into our area, but there were massive calls had to happen to keep that disease out. And that was the, the price they had to pay. Yeah. And to think that something like that could be created by mass vaccination possibly one yeah, day. Yeah. I, I, I and that's the, that's, the, that's the justification for it, right? Especially yeah. if we go down the route of... Um, you want engineered food crises and food shortages and food scarcity. If you had to say wipe out 60% of a, of a country's ability to produce its own beef, lamb or chicken, that's going to be felt pretty heavy in the, in the streets. Yeah. As, especially for those countries that do import all of their food or the majority of their food. I suppose we're quite lucky here because we have very good food security. Um, Low population, large amount of farming and agriculture. Exactly. That's not yeah, like the, so, the UK where a massive population, small geographical size, bugger all farming. Yeah, and and they're not they're not supporting their farmers either. And no, since since they left the EU, there's even less support for their farmers. So production is actually dropping over there too. Yeah, and especially with the Agenda 2030, where they're trying to actively reduce pretty well all cattle rate um, and ranching altogether. That eventually, yeah, it's probably and- going to be the model where you're going to have city states and they might have a sector which is used for agriculture. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's, I think there's a certain amount of demonization of agriculture and especially cattle um, by, and I think it's probably been pushed by the oil industry or, or the aviation industry. Um, you know, it, it's pretty easy for them to lobby and to, to create the false narrative that, you know, it is cow farts that are killing the world when there's the, the average person doesn't realize that, especially especially with, with pasture based or pasture based cattle and, and sheep farming with ruminants. You know, there is a there is a nutrient cycle and there is a there is a methane cycle where the methane that's given off by the cattle turns back into carbon over a number of years. And well, it's it's re the carbon is used by the plants that the, that the animals are eating. So it's actually a cycle. There's, while, while there's no new cattle being added to the system, it's almost carbon neutral already. Yeah, it offsets itself, especially if you're growing, say, lucin or some other kind of feed for your cattle. Even yes. if it's just um, grass-fed, the grass is absorbing that yeah. and yeah. the trees around everywhere as well. It's it's not measured that way by most governments. And no, most, definitely not. No, because because then they would realise that it wasn't a problem. So they they're actually going out of their way to measure it wrong, 
to demonize agriculture and you know there, there there are certain things we can live without and food isn't one of them yeah these are the same people though that will fly their private jets all to a g8 summit and talk about how bad everyone else is when they all could have taken a single flight together but you know exactly yeah yeah it's uh, do as i say and not as i do absolutely absolutely yeah. meanwhile they'll still be eating their steaks and everything when they're in their little houses at the end of the day and everyone else is living in a 100 percent. yes yeah <laughs> for sure so that's one area of a little bit of conspiracy we've spoken about that's actually really relevant to what you do in your life but you've also got a, a fair bit of interest in the old world yeah well i suppose um i've always had an interest in in history and hidden history and this year, back in November, I was lucky enough to go on a trip to Egypt. Um, so I went over there with the Snake Bros, um, guys from Gramerica and um, Uncharted X. So somewhere I'd always wanted to go. And we were lucky enough to go there with uh, our, our guide, Youssef. Is, um, he's the same guide that that Graham Hancock has used in, in some of his videos and stuff. Um, yeah, we, we got to go to a lot of um, closed sites, a lot of places where, um, yeah, the general public don't really see the, the point of going to them because what we I suppose what we were going to see was more of it. So well, going back, the Egyptologists have it. Are, are really working off a, a false story of you know Egypt being a few thousand years old when there's clearly history there that's tens of thousands of years older. Yeah, they're working off a university academic model to push a a, a set agenda that they've decided is the be all and end all. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and obviously they're they're still talking about the pyramids being burial chambers and you know ceremonial. That's their the throwaway line when for anything they don't understand it's ceremonial um yeah so i've been getting into the, there's a youtube channel called um the land of kim i'm not sure if you've ever checked that out so he he goes down the route of of you know the different pyramids and different structures being more like factories and, and more like uh, chemical production plants and and having a, a proper use um, so it was really interesting going to Egypt and going around these sites with that in mind. And it certainly makes a hell of a lot more sense than it does to uh, build a pyramid to to bury somebody in. Something that you ha- you'd have to start building pretty much the moment someone's born. Yeah, probably a few generations before they're born if you want to, if you want yeah, to fix exactly. it. You want to have it ready for them. So, and, and look, when you, when you climb down into like, you know, for example, uh, the Great Pyramid, it, it doesn't feel like it was ever designed for humans. You know, it, it really feels like it, it's some kind of a machine or, you know, unless the humans were two foot tall, they, they couldn't walk down those passages. It, there's there's no reason to design it in that way. It clearly had a function. And yeah, we were lucky enough to have guides that let us go anywhere we wanted. And they, they actually closed down the Great Pyramid for about two hours for us, just for our group. Uh, so we got to go right down into the subterranean chamber um, explore some stuff down there. We got into yeah, King's Chamber, Queen's Chamber. Yeah, it was amazing. Really, really awesome trip. 
So you've been there, but the impression I have is that the Egyptians kind of just moved in and painted stuff on the walls and kind of claimed what was there. They were like the uh, the squatters of the ancient world. Whereas you look, we're told by academia that the Egyptians were meticulous record keepers. They have their hieroglyphs, they have their paintings of their whole history. They, t- they tell us when floods occurred, they tell us when crops were brought in, but they don't tell us one of the biggest feats is that they created such monolithic structures without telling us how they did it or any um, kind of record of doing it. The older stuff is the better stuff. Yes, so it's like they tried to copy get, it and couldn't quite. How get do you it. get worse as you go along? Like the maybe more pyramid, more pyramids they built, the worse they got at it. Maybe like they the, had a pharaoh called Dan Andrews, and he introduced social. Media. <laughs> it probably probably went way over budget. Um, <laughs> yeah, and look, so we we went to a couple of sites where we were looking at some you know granite blocks that were underneath structures and, and below structures and there was uh just so happened there was a geologist on the trip with us he, he wasn't one of the get he wasn't one of the leaders he was just on the trip now he would not give us a date for how old the weathering was on the granite and yeah he said ten thousand years plus like way way older than ten thousand years potentially so some of the weathering damage on some of the blocks was yeah crazy when, when you understand how hard it is to weather granite and on a lot of and a lot of these structures are built on top of structures and sometimes those are built on top of something else um and i don't know if you've ever heard of a guy called mario build reps i have yeah you have yeah um so yeah some of his work is fascinating um you, you know he's looked at the alignments of a lot of these structures all around the world and which pole or which so most structures are built facing north, but where it was north at that time. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's uh, lined them up to multiple different poles and he's gone back hundreds of thousands of years with some of these structures. Not the structure that's on the top, but the structure that was underneath was built to face that direction. It's uh, the same stories repeated in, in Latin America as well, where you have the Omic, which are the, considered this almost like a ghost society that existed before the Aztec and the Maya, but they kind of built their society on top of what they already had. And like you said, their Omec structures were far more precise, far better engineering-wise, and then the new kids on the block who saw it tried to emulate it and build on top of it, but it wasn't as high quality. We see that all across the world. Uh, I I think the really interesting thing is that we've kind of got, say, Southeast Asia... Latin America and Egypt, where we see these pyramids. We're starting to see pyramids become more mainstream in our thought of archaeology in China now. We yeah. see these shapes of the Bolivia pyramid. We've got they planted, pyram- they planted trees on them in China to, yes, hide, to them. hide them. Um, we've got the Pyramid <laughs> of Gimpy in Australia, which I don't know if you know yes. about that one. Yeah. And they look exactly like what the pyramids in Latin America used to look like when the, the vegetation and earth had kind of just grown up over it over time. What's to say the Bolivian Pyramid and Gimpy Pyramid aren't the same just feet and feet after feet underneath it, buried yeah. over time? Yeah, well, the, there could be structures in Australia that we still haven't found yet. There could be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years old. So, yeah, who knows what's still hidden in Australian outback? That's it. There's um, there's one little key connector from South American Omex society or Aztecs to Australians, they've actually uncovered Aboriginal Australian bones in South America. So okay. that would that would either indicate somehow Aboriginals got all the way over there, yep. going a long way around, either went via canoe 
or boat, or someone came over and took them and took them back as a sacrifice. Yep. The world is a far bigger and more interesting place than I think anyone really understands, and I don't think we'll ever understand either. Yeah, 100%. We were lucky enough to get a look at the Sphinx Temple when we were... Um, so I, it's sort of one of the lesser-known temples. It's, it's kind of lying in ruin at the moment. They don't actually let people in there. We were the first tour group to get in there in over a decade. And you can tell by the weathering and and how old that is. It's it's just from time way before any of the pyramids. It's it's just a different era completely. And the Sphinx itself is probably from before the Younger Dryas. It's got a huge amount of weather, weather erosion on it from a time when Egypt was tropical and when there was heavy rain there every day is the only way it could have that kind of weathering on it yeah and it doesn't help when you have successive kingdoms come in and change the face of it into a pharaoh which it traditionally never was and even that's mainstream now like 10 years ago i can remember that being controversial and slowly these things are being drip fed into what the, the mainstream topics are yeah and i think you know unfortunately uh history progresses one funeral at a time you know that it's it's going to take a few of those Egyptologists to actually die before things will progress over there. Um, yeah, Zahi Awas has a lot to answer for. He's the he's, he's the gatekeeper. He's the guy gatekeeper at the moment. We were actually sitting in our hotel, and we the night before we we'd been talking about Zahi Awas and you know talking shit about him and stuff while, um, while we were having a few beers. And the next day, we realized that he was staying in our hotel. He was in the same room for breakfast with us the next morning. <laughs> well, he could have had you arrested. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Well, a couple of the guys did go up and get their photo with him, pretending they were fans, even though they certainly weren't fans of his. <laughs> Quality. Yeah. So what are the Grimerica boys like? Are they great in person? Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, no, they were they were really good to hang around with. Um, yeah, what you see is what you get. Darren's a stoner. He's... <laughs> He's um yeah pretty chilled out and yeah Graham's yeah Graham's just Graham they're, they're awesome guys yeah yeah, yeah. they've they've been operating that punk podcast for like ten plus years now and ten years their their ten year anniversary is today I think oh right which, oh there you go so, Happy well, anniversary Grand America yeah, which strangely enough is uh, my ten year anniversary with my partner and oh, very and very coincidental yeah yeah. So no, they they were great hosts, and the, yeah, this the Snake Bros were incredible hosts as well, Russ and Kyle, and um, yeah, and the token Aussie um, Ben from Uncharted X, he was incredible too. He's got some incredible knowledge. Awesome. So, besides that side of things, like you were interested in it, what do you think? Let's speculate because speculation can be fun. What do you think the old world looked like based on? being in those places what do you think the world at one point looked like um some form of technology that we've forgotten there there has to have been multiple types of technology you know you know i I think i think tesla was getting very close to to discovering or maybe he did you can definitely see some of his discoveries um probably he was he got too close to bringing back some of the old technology and yeah, they weren't able to do those things without technology that we've lost. There's so many of the things that they did back then that we can't do right now. 
you know, some people will say, oh, yeah, we could just build a pyramid now if we want. Well, yeah, nobody's done it. So under the step pyramid, they find thousands of um, stone vases, vases. Um, the precision in those is just incredible. Like, it cannot be recreated today. So they had they had some kind of lathes. They had some kind of, sort of laser cutting technology. Um, yeah, it's, it's just really hard to imagine what they had because we've somehow been left with no tools. Yeah, it's it's the mainstream idea that these people were cutting things with brass copper chisels. and copper chisels. That's quartz that you need diamond tip blades to try and pierce. It just yeah. doesn't make sense on a yeah on that kind of a scale. So, small small things with a lot of work. Yeah, they, someone could probably do that over time, yeah. but not such huge monolithic monolithic some, some of the some of the granite blocks have got a hundred mil wide core drills in them. And if you look really closely at the core drills, it's it's one continuous spiral. So it, it it's been done in one movement. It's it, it's not just somebody with a with a hole saw that's that's doing a rough job. It's so precise, and we can't recreate it. There's no way you can recreate it today. So they had something. We don't know what it was. Maybe um, something to do with frequency. You know, it's something it's some kind of a sound frequency technology. Um, yeah, I think it's just so different than the technology that we have. Well, you know, I don't think they had iPhones. I don't think they had a lot of the technology that we have, but they had other technologies that we can't even grasp. And we we don't even have the starting point to imagine what the what those technologies were. Um it's like Atlantis, you know, people talk about, you know, Atlantis was this high tech place and it's like, yeah, well, it mightn't have been high tech in the way that we think of high tech. Yeah, they didn't need fifty different precious metals from around the world to make one little device. They could just do things with frequencies, or they had a means of lifting things that could have been simple to us, but are actually very ingenious. Yeah, I think they had a better understanding of the world and a better understanding of the of everything that was going on around them. We seem to be focused on very narrow field. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you a controversial question when it comes to Egypt and the old world. People or ancient aliens? No, I don't. I think we were. I think we are the ancient aliens. Um, maybe maybe there has been some travel between different planets, but I don't think it's necessary for it to have happened. Um, yeah, I think that the um, ancient aliens proposed such great thought-provoking questions back in the day about how people couldn't have possibly built it with the current technology we have, but they really pivoted to, oh, it's got to be outside forces where humans are capable of all sorts of things. And if we had the right knowledge and right tool sets at the time, nothing to say we couldn't do it. Yeah. And I just think our history is probably a lot, lot older than we realize. And, And there's certainly a lot of it that's been forgotten, but there's certainly a lot of it that's been hidden as well. You know, we, we can't we can't trust what was on the news yesterday. So how can we trust what happened a hundred years ago? What, what, how can we trust the history books from a hundred years ago? I I don't believe anything that was on last week's news. Exactly. If I watched it. Oh, you've got it in real time. The article you tried to find's been wiped now. Yes. So what else has been taken out? Exactly. The likes of the Catholic Church. Who knows how much history was destroyed or hidden away in the Vatican archives by them? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, well, probably still there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, they don't let very many people in there and the people they do are 
not going to really release anything that's too controversial. No, it was interesting. I don't know if you saw it on the news last week. A guy rushed the Swiss guard and got shot at the Vatican trying to break okay. in. Yep. And two minutes of airtime, didn't say anything about it. That's the first time I've heard anyone being killed at the Vatican. And he was killed. He was killed, yeah. Okay. Very interesting stuff. Well, they've certainly got stuff to hide. So even in recent times, never mind what they they have to hide from potentially hundreds or thousands of years ago. Exactly. Yeah, they um they hid kitty fiddling for a little while, but that's out in the open. So it makes you wonder what they're really hiding behind that. Oh, that's it's almost been a good distraction from what they're really hiding. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Now I don't know if you've been told this before, and because we are both in a mutual group and we list we but I'd take it that you listen to them as well. Legit Bat. Do you know that you look a hell of a lot like Joe from Legit Bat? <laughs> no, a I didn't. Of, you do. I'm really? gonna to have to I'm gonna to have to meme that somehow. You look exactly like Joe, but maybe just okay, like an Irish okay. version. Uh well I've got long hair. I don't yeah, think he's hair his hair is not as long as mine, is it? Oh well, I think it's pretty close. I think the only difference is you're a little bit lighter and maybe your eyes are a bit more blue. But you look yeah. like uh, a Joe like copy. Slightly more Aryan. Yeah, slightly more Aryan Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Came from the same factory or the same test tube, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's probably got some good Irish genes in him if he goes back back far enough. Well, he's short enough. He must have Irish in him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, mate. This has been a great conversation. Um, do you, Are you on social media at all? Do you, do you put anything out or do you just follow along with yeah, no, what's going on? Nothing really. People will find me if they want to find me. That's it. Well, yeah, like you said, um, you got no boss to worry about sacking you, so dox away. <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. yeah. That's that's the good thing about working for yourself and yeah, not having to worry. Perfect. What a great place to be in. If only we could all be so lucky. All right, everyone. Well, this is another great episode of Conspiracy Chit Chat. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you want to participate in this, reach out to me at drewmisson88 at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to me on my Instagram, missing underscore the underscore point. I am heavily shadow banned, so probably try the email. That's your best point of call. Thanks again, Brian. This was fantastic. Hey, everybody. It's closing time. You don't got to go home, but you can't stay here.